24, I'm going to start in verse 40, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 40 says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we'll pray. Lord, again, I just want to commit this time to you, Lord. We just want to ask for your help this morning. Um, help for me to be clear in the things that I say, that uh, I would be faithful to your word, Lord, and, Lord, that uh, the things I say this morning would be a help. Help each one that's here to uh, just focus their attention on you, and what you would have for them this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you remember last week, I was, I'm supposed to start giving you a, or the, you, the young people, kids, whatever, whoever, whoever. I think the adults counted more than the kids, the, the word that I gave them to look for in the message last week. So whoever wants to. And so this morning, I, for, if you're trying to pay attention and count, I want to count how many times I reference Christ. And in, you can also try to figure out how many different ways I reference Christ. So that'll be your search for this morning. All right. The, obviously, the passage that we're, we're in, we've been working our way through this chapter and this topic of the end times, the end of the world, comes up on a daily basis nearly in the news, in conversations with people as we're looking at what's going on around us in the world. And so we, we look at these things and we can know a certain amount. Last week I made the point, I think it was last week I made the point, that Jesus made the point to the people, it says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Christ himself didn't know what day that second coming would occur. He didn't know exactly when the end of the world was going to take place. And so we can't know the details of exactly when these things are going to happen. But we can look, and he says of the times and the seasons, you can know. We can look around and we can see the stuff as it's lining up and fitting the descriptions of what's going on in our world as it matches what is described in the Bible, and we can kind of know that the end is coming. We can anticipate his return, and this is where he's 
talking this morning, um, the, the very previous um, couple of verses was talking, and he just made reference to Noah. Um, verse 37 says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he gives a description, and we talked about that a little bit last week. And this in the end, verse 39 says, So also, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And this is the context of everything that we're looking at in, in this whole area of Scripture is the coming of the Son of Man. It's his, the second coming of Christ is what we're looking for and looking at. And each one of these times, and it starts in verse 27, speaking of the coming of the Son of Man. And I said last week, starting in verse 30, there's seven times. So with verse 27, eight different times from that point on in this chapter, it's, it references the coming of the Son of Man. And each different thing that gets talked about is just another description or another aspect of the coming of the Son of Man. And so we need to look at some of these carefully. Um, we need to understand um, each one of these things that we look at, each time it mentions the coming of the Son of Man is like, we're not looking at a new event. So starting where it talks about the lightning cometh from the east and shineth unto the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That's in verse 27. Every time it starts to describe this, and then it kind of switches and goes back and describes it again. It's just a different description of the same events. It's not like we're looking at a chronological order of things continuing on and new things happening. It's just, he's just trying to get across what this looks like. Because we're kind of thick-headed sometimes and have a hard time getting these things. So he's really just re-describing the same thing again as far as the best I can understand what he's doing here. So we need to, and how do we, here's the, the question is, is, how do we know? How do we know when we're, I don't know if it was last, I, I, I lose track of when I've said what, but remember, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about, we can go through, and I use Genesis as a description of that, where in Genesis in the first couple of chapters, it re-describes the creation and the creation of man. And it adds detail in each description. And so that's kind of what is happening here is we're just adding a different detail or a different aspect of it, looking at these different ways of looking at these things. And we need to always look at the context of the passage and, and the, the word in determine whether this is that or if it's actually a new event or a different event. And we're going to try to compare some of that this morning and see if we can see that there's, sometimes there's similar things described in the Bible that aren't the same event. And I think we're going to look, see that this morning, that even some similar things are sometimes different things. And we're going to look at that. But if I want to just, I want to look at, 2 Timothy chapter 2, just for a moment.
part of what I'm saying here, just trying to understand how to read and study and understand our Bible. And I, I went through that with that example in Genesis, trying to build the picture line upon line here a little there a little. And I want to continue building that idea, that understanding of how we study and, and read Scripture and how we put it together is very important. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says to us, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. So we're supposed to study. It says, A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some, some versions will say rightly handling, but we need to, we need to look at a few different things when we're reading a passage. Um, the next chapter over, 2 Timothy 3.16, there's different purposes for different passages of scriptures. But verse 16 of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so some of this, what we look at, is good for doctrine. Some of it's good for reproof and for correction. And some of it's good for instruction in righteousness. And we need to look at things and see these different aspects of the scriptures that we're looking at. And there's some questions that we can ask that are important questions. And one of those things is, who is it written to or who is being spoken to? Not everything is written to you. Some things are written to a particular group at a particular time and doesn't directly apply to us. Sometimes. And sometimes it is. Does. So we need to look at those things and understand when, when it doesn't apply to us or when it does apply to us. Sometimes we need to look at who it's talking about. Because sometimes God talks about a certain group and that group may not be you and me. And so we, we can understand, we can learn things from these things that are, are about and to other people. But sometimes they're not directly for us in the context. Part of it is when is it referring to? Sometimes there's a time frame of when things are being talked about and certain things apply at only a certain time in Scripture. And so the most important thing in the end is that what is the lesson for me in that? Is this a doctrinal thing? Is this a reproof? Is this instruction in righteousness? If you read some of your Old Testament, there's some odd things out there. <laughs> there's some terrible stories in our Old Testament. And you know, there's often no, no narrative telling us what to learn from those things. It just tells us what happened, what evil things people did to one another. It just tells us the story. It doesn't always tell us what to get from it. But there's enough other instruction. We're supposed to study all the scripture and put the stuff together. And to, to be able to look at that passage and say, well, this is how they disobeyed scripture. There's, and we can reprove and we can, we can learn from these things of what we should or shouldn't be doing. Anyway, so this is how we're, we're building our understanding of scripture. It's just a, a part of it. So we'll go back in, in Matthew 24 and we'll get to verse 40. 
This is interesting. It says two shall be in the field. One shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. And I believe another one of the other gospels talks about two will be in bed together and one will be taken and the other left. But two people working together, standing together, living life together. Remember we talked in, in the days of Noah. People just kept on living life like there was nothing going on that was about to destroy the world. And that's what Jesus says. People are going to act like that. Even through the days of the tribulation, with all the evil that's going on around them, all the destruction, and people are going to try to just carry on as if this isn't going to affect me. I'll just take that mark and do this, and I can still buy my food and do they're going to go with all their day-to-day lives, pretending like nothing substantial is going on. And there are going to be two people out in the field trying to gather some food together. Two people are going to be grinding at the mill, working. They're just going to work, going about their daily lives. And all of a sudden, one of them is going to disappear. questions to be asked. Which one disappears? So who's, who's Jesus talking to or about in this circumstance? We need, to, we need to try to understand that because it can change what we believe as doctrine. <laughs> we need to know who it's referring to. And when does this take place? Some of these things are important to know when this is talking about because it might change what you think it means or who it's talking about. And so we need, can, the third thing is to what can we learn from this? So first of all, who is being taken here? And certainly in, if you read, Jesus wasn't clear as to who is taken. But there are some clues there and there's actually some information elsewhere in other teachings that Jesus gave that will give us that information. You go back to verse 28. Remember, I said this is, sometimes we're just adding details here as we go through. These aren't new events taking place. It's just more details of the same event, of his coming. And so in verse 28, it says, For wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. That's the coming of the Son of Man. This verse 40 is the coming of the Son of Man. At that same, same event, at his coming, it describes the carcasses gathered together. Or sorry, the, gar- the carcasses are, and then the eagles will be gathered together. And in this other verse, it's talking about two standing together and one being taken. So who's being taken and where are they going is a good question. And I think we need to to go back to Matthew 13. And Jesus gives a a parable, and then he gives an explanation of the parable here. So, there's a carcass. Remember in, in verse 28, there's carcasses and scavenger animals eating those carcasses. 
So Matthew 13, and we'll start in verse 24. We'll read the the parable, and then we'll get into the, the explanation of it. So verse 24 of Matthew 13 says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, dis not thou sow good seed in thy field? And from whence then hath the tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while, they gather, while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them. But let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. And we'll skip a few verses. He actually changes topic there. And we get to verse 36. Or he just gives another parable, actually. But verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So the disciples get him alone now, and they're like, Can you explain this? We don't get it. And thankfully for those disciples that didn't get it, because we also probably wouldn't get it. <laughs> we get Jesus' explanation to them, which is a wonderful thing for us. Verse 37 says, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. There's our Context is the end of the world, right? And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so, what we can gather from this, this is speaking of the exact same thing as Matthew 24, is the end of the world, is at the second coming of Christ. And it talks about the tares and the wheat, and the tares or the wheat is the believers, and the tares are the wicked. And the tares are the ones that are gathered first. When Jesus says one is taken and the other left, the one taken is the tares, the non-believer. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, I think most Christians would turn, most people who don't study their Bible enough, will turn to this passage and assume that it's speaking of the pre-trib rapture. But we need to put it into context and study scripture of what all is said about this moment. And we realize that, well, this is at the end of the tribulation. 
And this is Jesus' second coming. This isn't a pre-trib rapture at all. And you don't want to take part in that rapture because this isn't a rapture of saints. This is a rapture of sinners, of those who commit iniquity and are enemies of the Lord. He's gathering them there together to destroy them. This isn't the rapture. Not, not of a, a pre-trib rapture of the church at the very least. And so we need to, that's my point, is that we need to study, look at context and understand that just because we have an idea in our head of a certain doctrinal thing, not everything that sounds like that is necessarily that. And so there may be other passages that we need to look at and, and understand. So in that light, we need to look at the other passages that speak of similar events. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And if you want to try to get both of those at the same time and hold your fingers in both, because we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And it's basically near the end of the chapter of, of both of these passages. So, <clears throat> and I didn't bring bookmarks either. So we'll see. There we go. So, First Corinthians fifteen. We'll start with. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses from it, starting in verse fifty. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. And this gives us a little bit of context as to why we're saying what we're saying and what time these things are happening. We're, we're certainly speaking of the end of the world and the inheritance and the, the beginning of the kingdom um, Christ reigning for that thousand year reign at the end. Um, Neither doth corruption inherit, but verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And so, really, this passage doesn't give us a lot of context. It just, we understand it's the end of the world and there's a change that's going to take place. We get a resurrected, new, glorified body because this current body that we live in doesn't get to go and be in God's presence because it's corrupt. <laughs> and so we need, we need a new one and we're going to get a new one. Whether, whether dead or alive at that moment, it says the dead get theirs first and then those that are alive, get theirs next. We'll go to, oh, maybe one, one important thing to note. Verse 51 says, I show you a mystery. He's showing, this is, the Apostle Paul is showing something that wasn't clearly revealed in Scripture up until this point. He's showing us a mystery. All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
So 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to start in verse 13. It says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, and by asleep he means dead, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So a couple of things to notice between these two passages. Like I said, one in 1 Corinthians, it says it's a mystery, something that hasn't really been clearly revealed up until this point. Second thing, and we could see it in this passage in 1 Thessalonians, says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we are to meet the Lord in the air. If you're on that page, it's either on the same page or the back of the page in your Bible. First um, Thessalonians 3.13 says something important here. It says, To the end he may establish or establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So there's some... This is a, there's some interesting things here, is there's some contradictions that we're dealing with. Because that one says he's coming with his saints. The other one said, we're going to meet him in the air. And if we're comparing back with Matthew 24, if we establish that the people being caught away first are not the saints, but the enemies those that are being taken to be destroyed. Why are the dead in Christ raised first here? There's a difference here, and I don't think we're talking about the exact same event. We're talking about the right time frame, certainly the end and the second coming, but this one doesn't appear to be the end of the tribulation and talking the same event as Matthew 24. Another interesting thing is that Jesus in Matthew 24 never gives any indication that anybody ought to be comforted by the words that he's speaking. By the events that he's describing there, he doesn't give any comfort in these events taking place. And yet, in both of these passages that Paul is writing about these events. He says to comfort one another with these words. Those are important things. And so, looks to me like there's two different events that have similar descriptions. I believe this one happens at the beginning of the tribulation. As if we continue to get um, in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5. 
He says, comfort one another with these words. And he talks about the church in verse 9. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus. The tribulation period and God's judgment, that's his wrath being poured out. And we've talked about that already in the last few weeks. That time is God's wrath being poured out on those who've rejected him. And it's a time of returning Israel, that remnant of Israel, back to him. And we get into Revelation. We look in uh, chapter, chapter 7 of, of Revelation, where we're going to be studying the Bible study. And there's this 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 from each tribe are set us apart and protected during that time. No mention of those of like people like us, of the Gentiles, who are not part of those people. We're not even mentioned there. I believe it's because we're not there. So I think there's two things, and we are to be comforted by the idea that the church is to be caught up in the rapture, taken to the Lord in the air prior to the tribulation, and then his actual second coming is that second event that we're reading of in Matthew 24. Now, there's the doctrinal parts of it. And yeah, I know there's a little bit of differences of opinion among different people on that. And yes, it's important that we work these things out. And we're doing our best to do that. But there's something more important. What is this trying to actually teach me? What lesson in my life can be applied from learning and reading of these things? There's more to it than just knowing the future, <laughs> knowing the prophetic things that are going to happen one day. Because I can tell you for the last 2,000 years since Christ, knowing the details of these events hasn't really helped most people's lives in any way, shape, or form. It hasn't affected them in any way, shape, or form. There is something more important for us in these things. If you hold your spot, if you haven't lost it in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and look back at Matthew 24, it's what he says next, what Christ says next, is the lesson I really want us to get. Verse, I said hold your spot in those other two, because we're going back there as well. Verse 42 says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Be ye ready. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 58, the end of that passage that we read, and it talks a little bit more of that new body, that resurrected, perfect, incorruptible body that we're going to receive one day. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, because... That's going to happen and someday, and you don't know when that is, 
Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't know how to not read the whole chapter here. I might do it. (laughs) It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Same description. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Not us, them. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, as do others. But let us watch and be sober. Same, doesn't matter, like, whether we're talking about those in the tribulation, about to see the second coming and the destruction of the world by Christ's return, or whether we're sitting here in the church looking at the events of the world around us and waiting for Christ to rapture the church to take us out of the way before those events. Same instruction is to all of us. Is watch. Be aware of the times and be ready for it. Verse 8 says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Verse 11 says, Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. This is an important verse for us. This is an instruction to us as a church. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another. We're to gather together, for one. We can't do this if we're not together. If you're not coming and fellowshipping with other believers, you're not going to be able to comfort yourselves together, and you're not going to be edifying one another. Part of this instruction is be careful of making a big deal over maybe a difference of opinion over some part of our understanding of these scriptures. We're to edify one another. We're like lift each other up and encourage each other rather than putting each other down because you disagree over something. We're to, we're to actually comfort and edify not to, not to hurt one another. This is our job together is to, to lift each other up. I'm going to go down to verse 14 I'll read the next few verses. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men, and see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, And in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, and prove all things. 
Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's some instruction for us. <laughs> Here's something we can learn in the context of looking at the end of the world and the things that are going to happen there. In the meantime, and this is the meantime, in our day-to-day lives, this is what we ought to look like. This is how we should be living and acting and treating not just one another, but he even says among yourselves and to all men. We were talking on uh, last Thursday about um, in the tribulation, the saints that are martyred for Christ are calling out to God for vengeance on those that did those wicked deeds and killed them. And I said, that's not us. Because in the church, in today, in the age of grace, it, it says, render not evil for evil, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and all men. It doesn't matter who's doing evil to you. We're not to render evil for evil. We're not to call out for vengeance because someone hurt us. That's not the church. That's not us. There's a difference. It's important who it's talking to and when those things apply. We look at some of these, some of these things. There's a reason why this is written. Is because we need to hear it. We need to be instructed in righteousness, as that Second Timothy three said. We need instruction in righteousness. We need to be told what righteousness looks like so that we can modify our behavior to match what Scripture says. And these are the things that we need to do. You couldn't spend enough time probably looking at these from verse 14 to 22. Wow, the stuff that's in there is substantial. And if we took a look at each one of those things, and apply that, compare that to our lives. I can look at my life and I know I do not fit a single one of those the way I ought to. I can look at those and there's some things that I need to change in my life. And Zord, you warn them that are unruly. You know what? our, Our job as a Christian is to tell others when they're not living the way God would have them to live, when they're not living up to this description that God has for us, our job as a Christian, my job as a pastor, is to warn you, to tell you that you're not doing it, that you need to change some aspect of the way you're living. We're to be comforting to the feeble-minded. We're to support the weak and be patient. That's hard, right? Be patient. Those it's funny that's in the same sentence as comforting the feeble-minded. I've had some conversations in the past. When you're counseling the same person over the same issue, week after week, month after month, year after year, comforting the feeble-minded, says, be patient. Mm-hmm. We get fed up. Like, 
don't you get it? How many times do I have to explain, right? But we need to be patient towards all men and comforting those feeble-minded and supporting the weak. Don't render evil for evil. Verse 16 is wonderful. Rejoice evermore. <laughs> Just done. <laughs> Rejoice. God is good. Even in, we so, we're so focused on our problems. What a, what a pathetic way to live our lives. Look at what God has done for us. Look at the good that God gives us. We can rejoice evermore. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pray without ceasing. Do you pray without ceasing? You go through your day, do you, do you actually think of God and actually incorporate God into your cooking the meals and washing the dishes and changing the tire on the flat that you had on your way home. Like, do you praise God over these things? And just, is he part of that conversation? If you're, if you're angry and swearing and cursing over every little thing that goes wrong, chances are this isn't a pray without ceasing situation, is it? We can look to God for, for answers. And I've said many times, you don't know when that whatever distraction, whatever delay in your day might have just saved your life, <laughs> might have just saved you from some other thing that God's protecting you from. You just don't know. Maybe something that happened to you is giving you the ability to help somebody else through something later. We don't know what God's doing in the, in the trials, and so we can rejoice and give thanks in everything, even the stuff that we don't, want or like verse 19 says clench not the spirit (laughs) if you're not praying without ceasing if you're not involving God in every aspect of your life you are quenching the spirit you're not letting him work in your heart and your mind to to work through these things because if you're trying to do this on your own try to change your life and live this perfect righteous life well you're probably turning back into the Galatian church and living under law just following rules as opposed to living by the spirit of God guiding our our life and, and helping us to make these changes so quench not the spirit despise not prophesying all this prophecy that we read about it's there for us to learn. And I love the last verse. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point, is that we are to live every day as if today is the day that he's going to return and we're going to be facing God. What a day that will be. And I've said it many times. What would you prefer to be doing at that moment? Should you be in prayer, praising God, giving thanksgiving for whatever the terrible circumstance, the flat tire and the broken whatever? Or what if you're fuming, angry, yelling at your wife or children, swearing about the broken thing? At that moment when Christ comes, 
that's, that's, that's the whole reason we need to be changed, right? <laughs> we need that incorruptible because we need it. <laughs> but we ought, live your life. When we look at these things and these events that are going to happen, whether you think it's a rapture before the tribulation or whether you think it's, you're going through it and it's, you're facing that second coming, either way, either way, both groups of people ought to be living every day as if that day is about to happen and I'm going to face God today. And live the life according as he's describing. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we look at these things. And yes, the doctrinal aspects are, are certainly important for us to get. And Lord, we study to, to learn those things. But there's, there's lessons that affect our day-to-day life, how we live, how we behave each and every day, Lord. And help us to look for those things even as we're studying these doctrinal things. Help us to see where we need to change and to conform to your will, Lord, to your way of life, that we would be able to please you in the way that we live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.